Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. Thank you so much for joining me. Hey, I, I have to give a quick shout out here because uh, I want you to know that Ammon Bundy will be on the air, albeit at a new time. We have uh, we have done some shifting around in the schedule. So you, some of you have noticed this, <laughs> and and I've heard a little bit about it. But uh, we are uh, we're moving. Ammon and the other shows that aired during this hour, the, we call it the Round Robin shows, uh, Larry Reed among them, Ammon Bundy, Ralph DeLugas among others, to the 5 p.m. Mountain Time slot. So you can still catch his show. You can still catch the podcast. That's the beauty, too, of, of uh, the podcast is you can catch it any time that you want to. But yes, Ammon does have a new show coming out today. He has a fantastic message to share with you. And so if you're a little disappointed, as I would be, if I was expecting to hear Ammon right now, and instead you had to listen to me, well, take heart. Won't be long, and you'll be hearing from him. All right, I'm going to move on. i got a couple of things here that I want to get to this hour. Uh, some of this is kind of fun. I, I was hearing in the news that, uh, oh, well, apparently there's this new bill called the Response Bill, and it's it's in typical Orwellian fashion. It's how do we separate people from their inherent rights to provide some supposed benefit that will prevent mass shootings from ever happening? Yeah, I'm a skeptic. I'll just come right out and say it. I'm not just a, a bit of a skeptic. I'm a huge skeptic. I think it's a great big load of road apples and I'm going to encourage you, don't buy into it. Don't be wooed by the idea that, hey, if we just give us enough power, man, we can we can protect you. Because I don't think it's possible. And I don't think those who are clamoring for this kind of power have your best interest in mind. Instead, what I think they are trying to do is just consolidate power. And this is going to sound a little bit jaded, but whatever they have in mind for you and I, they suspect that we are not going to agree strongly enough that we would take up arms to defend ourselves if necessary. I know that sounds like a radical thing to say, but I stand by it. I think it's the truth. So in that sense, that uh, semi-automatic uh, rifle that you own is less of a menace to society and more of a life preserver. And as I'm looking around, those seas are looking a little bit choppy. In fact, the ship of state seems to be foundering a little bit. Maybe even taking on water. I don't think I'd be turning loose of my life preserver. At least not yet. <laughs> and there, there comes the question here. Are we too paranoid about mass shootings? Terrific article by Jacqueline Schildkrau. This is on intellectualtakeout.org. Hopefully it can put a little bit of perspective into what, what sounds like just more rehashed hysteria. Well, we're all scared and we know that this is really dangerous and, and the chances of dying in, in, a, in a mass shooting or a school shooting are so great. We have to do something. Let's put some of this to rest and see if we can, can bring a little bit of reason back into the discussion. Maybe even a little bit of perspective. And then we don't have to all walk around having just wet our pants from being so afraid all the time. 
Are we too paranoid about mass shootings? Jacqueline Schildkraut says, Many Americans worry about when, not if, another mass shooting will occur. And a Gallup poll from September found nearly half of Americans fear being a victim of one of these attacks. After the film Joker was released, you could see these fears play out. Many announced, well, I'm not going to go see it in the theater. The film's deranged main character, they said, would inspire people like the Aurora, Colorado shooter, who back in 2012 killed 12 people and wounded 70 others during a screening of The Dark Knight Rises. I'm going to miss two minutes of the movie looking for emergency exits in a panic every time someone gets up to go to the bathroom, a film critic wrote for The Cut. Many theaters hired extra security to allay the fears of moviegoers. And then there have been false alarms in Times Square, New York, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, Cambridge, Massachusetts, and most recently in Boca Raton, Florida, which is less than 30 minutes from the site of the Parkland shooting. The Times Square panic was caused by a motorcycle backfiring. The Boca Raton false alarm set off by a popped balloon. Everyone, it seems, is on the edge. Which begs the question, should we be? Jacqueline Schildkraut says, my research has shown a big discrepancy between the actual threat of mass shootings and the way the public perceives that threat. In other words, people think mass shootings are far more common than they are. Why does this discrepancy exist and what sort of ramifications does it have? So to that end, she asks us, let's zoom out a little bit. Saying sometimes it's worth putting mass shootings in context. Homicides account for just point, I'm sorry, 0.1% of all offenses known to law enforcement. Mass shootings represent just a fraction of all homicides. So did you get that? Homicides account for 0.1% of all offenses known to law enforcement. And of that 0.1%, mass shootings are a tiny fraction of all homicides. She says, in a recent analysis, my colleagues and I determined that the average annual victimization rate of mass shootings, meaning the rate of being injured or killed in one, is less than 0.04 per 100,000 people. Put another way, being the victim of a mass shooting is just about as unlikely as being struck by lightning, which occurred at a rate of 0.035 per 100,000 people in 2016. I'm not trying to scare you here, but she says over the course of your life, you're far more likely to die in a car crash, in a fire, or by choking on food. And yet you don't feel a twinge of anxiety every time you get into a car. You don't scan the emergency exits every time you're in a building in case there's a fire. So why do they evoke so much fear, meaning mass shootings? Well, there are several reasons. For one, people tend to think mass shootings are more common than they actually are. This could be partially due to the fact that there's no precise definition or generally accepted national data source on what constitutes a mass shooting. One of the sources that gets included in a lot of media reports is the Gun Violence Archive, which defines a mass shooting as an incident with four or more people excluding the perpetrator being shot. So by their own admission, the Gun Violence Archive doesn't uh, consider circumstances surrounding the shooting. So after an event like the El Paso shooting, you'll see the gun violence archive cited in some media reports which show a mass shooting happening nearly every day. But there are significant and qualitative differences between mass shootings like Columbine, Las Vegas, Parkland and El Paso 
and other types of gun violence like uh, familicides, where a person murders their family members, or gang shootings. By lumping all events together in one database, it makes the problem of mass shootings typically thought of in the context of events like Columbine appear endemic. Mass shootings, the public kind, have happened on average about 20 times per year in the United States. Now, this is more in line with the FBI's database of active shooting incidents, of which there were 27 in 2018. Now, that's still too many, but it's a lot less than the 337 recorded in 2018 by the Gun Violence Archive. The frequency of these public mass shootings is slightly increasing. But the 20-year average has remained largely consistent since 2006. They continue to be statistically rare events. So statistically, it doesn't square with reality. So what else might be driving this perception that, that evokes so much fear? Well, it may be that media coverage is a key driver of fear. She says the vast majority of people will never be directly impacted by a mass shooting. So media coverage serves as their main source of information about these events. When it comes to covering social issues, media outlets can choose from hundreds, but tend to only select a handful. That's what's called setting the agenda. So when media outlets decide to emphasize some issues, say guns, mental health and violent media over others, they're telling news consumers that these issues should be on their minds and should predominate over others, even if they're exceedingly rare. In the 1980s, sociologist Joel Best created a three-step model to show how rare events are turned into widespread social threats. Best used missing children to illustrate this phenomenon, but he later applied it to understanding how society and the media have responded to, to school shootings. So first, the problem is given a name which allows it to be defined. That name, in this case, mass shootings, is splashed across newspaper headlines and television screens. Next... Examples, particularly the most extreme ones, are used to highlight the seriousness of the problem. For mass shootings, Columbine is the lodestone. Even 20 years later, it serves as the point of comparison for all mass shootings. And finally, statistics are used to underscore the severity or breadth of the issue. In the coverage of mass shootings, the media often highlight the casualty count, allowing them to rank events as the worst. Other statistics, like where mass shootings are situated within the natural, national crime picture, those things are typically omitted. We'll come back to this article in a few moments. you have some thoughts, feel free to call in, 801-331-8113. This is Loving Liberty. We'll be back after these messages. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. I've been sharing an article here with you about uh, are we too paranoid about mass shootings? You give the problem a name which allows it to be defined, splash that name across the headlines and newspapers or the, the newspaper headlines and television screens. Then you give the extreme examples to highlight the seriousness of the problem. And then you use statistics to underscore the severity or breadth of the issue. Now, those statistics are selective meaning uh, you could you could tell people this was the worst mass shooting you know in this state's history without ever telling people where that uh, falls statistically within the national crime picture 
And, of course, the article says there's also a public appetite for coverage of mass shootings. They're dramatic. They're terrifying. So they attract clicks and viewers. But by the time by the but the airtime that mass shootings receive is far removed from their statistical likelihood. And so the frequency with which stories are, are told about it or it's highlighted or sensationalized, it cements the phenomenon as a social issue. Maybe that's why 48% of Americans say they fear being victimized by a mass shooter. Even though the likelihood that they will ever be a victim of a mass shooter is statistically almost non-existent. Let's go to the phone. 801-331-8113. I've got Rob on the line. Hey, Rob, welcome to Loving Liberty. Now, I'm kind of confused here. I was just listening to Joe on K-Talk Radio. Mm-hmm. What happened to that show? Um, Joe is on K-Talk Radio, also K-Y-A-H. And what is this, Loving Liberty? This is a different one? Yeah. No, it's, this, is, this is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Are, are you listening to oh, K-Talk okay. right now? I was a few minutes ago. Okay. I, I thought I was calling Loving Liberty. You are calling. You are on Loving Liberty. Now you're confusing me, man. I know, What's the I big know, deal I know, here? I know what's going on. Hey, uh, you know, I went to a seminar. This is kind of off topic of what you're talking about, mass shootings. Um, I'm, I'm just talking about, you know, they were talking about health insurance is the number one uh, thing that people are going to be concerned about when they go to, you know, vote this year. And, and you know, I think that's, that's totally valid. I, I mean, I, I'm learning. I went to a seminar yesterday, and these insurance companies that are actually taking your money for liability, car insurance, you name it, homeowners insurance, they are scamming us in such a way because we're not reading our policies. We're, we're basically not covered for the thing we think we are covered for that we've been paying for. And, you know, I, I mean, insurance, think of how much money you've paid through your life for insurance. Yeah, more than more than I would like to. More than I would like to as well. I mean, another retirement pol- uh, uh, plan for me, probably through your lifetime, between car insurance, homeowners, and 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 healthcare. And this is the only industry in the world that we pay into dearly, every American, but yet we get penalized when we use it. Something's got to change, man. I, I think it's. I think the people need to start really pushing their politicians. And not to mention, not only are we being penalized, but half of the stuff is fraud. Yeah. Well, there's, there's incentive because the there's big, there's big money involved. Excuse me? There's, it, there's incentive to commit fraud because there's such big money involved. It's phenomenal. And, and, I, and I'm just, I'm just a mesmerized that the, the, the states you know, and the governments are mandating us to have all this stuff when we drive our car, when we have a mortgage, when we have a business, yet they're not overseeing the stuff that they're selling to the people and the stuff that they're mandating us to have, and half of it's fraud. It's, it's, it's ludicrous. No, I'm, I'm with you, and I, I appreciate your take on this. It's, it's an illustration, again, of that central planning. Well, someone in, in authority thinks they know what's best for everybody. And, and look, the, the quickest way to put that to the lie is to just to ask yourself the question. Who is better qualified to make the decisions about how to run your day-to-day life? Somebody sitting in your state legislature? Someone at the county level? Someone on your city council? Someone, you know, in, in Congress? Some bureaucrat who isn't even elected? Who really has the best 
information as well as the proper authority to make those kind of decisions. I know a few people who say, well, I don't trust myself. I'm just a person who doesn't know what to do. Okay, well, then sit on the curb and cry until somebody brings you cookies and milk. But for most of us, the best answer and the, the only obvious answer is we should be making those decisions. That doesn't mean that there's no role for legislation, you know, at some level. If someone's done something wrong or defrauded or measurably harmed another person. And I mean, in a way that you can demonstrate, look, this is the harm that was suffered. Government can go about making that right. But the default setting should be it should stay out of the way in every other instant. Let us sort out those details ourselves. It's amazing how resourceful we can be. I want to come back here just for a moment to the article about are we too paranoid about mass shootings? Since right now someone is pushing legislation at the federal level, which not only seeks to restrict guns, but seeks to take them out of the hands of people preemptively. It's pre-crime a la, you know, minority reports being foisted on us in the name of safety. Why? Because mass shootings. Don't be that gullible. As the author points out here, the disparity between public perceptions of the threat and the reality of their occurrence have some pretty significant consequences. Accompanying the heightened panic about mass shootings is a demand for something to be done and to be done immediately to prevent future attacks. But do these proposed fixes make sense? Are they even viable? Take schools. Even in the aftermath of shootings like Sandy Hook and Parkland, schools remain among the safest places for children. Nonetheless, in the wake of these tragedies, a school security market has emerged that now takes in $3 billion just in the U.S. every year. Many of the solutions these firms tout, bulletproof backpacks, security cameras, metal detectors, might give people the impression that their kids are safer. But in many cases, there's, actual, there's little actual evidence that they'll prevent a school shooting or minimize the loss of life if one does occur. And again, that's if one occurs. Look, the bottom line here is fear is a powerful emotion. It's easily exploitable. It comes with a high price tag, and it dictates the decisions we make. Let's not allow this fear to prevent us from living our lives and addressing the problem in a smart and realistic way. This is the recommendation of Jacqueline Schildkrau, writing for intellectualtakeout.org. I'll have a link to this article, which I will put with the show notes on the podcast. You can access the podcast at lovingliberty.net. It really comes down to having the perspective. You know, I'm I'm a big believer that there's there's a degree of responsibility that goes along with taking care of yourself or watching out for your own well-being. And that's why I encourage people, you know, if they're if they're so inclined and they say, well, you know, I've been thinking about uh, buying a gun. I'm all for that. Good. Go for it. But I also encourage them. Don't miss out on a chance to go and get training as much training as you can. There's no such thing as too much training because when you do, you will go from simply being a gun owner to being a responsible gun owner. And sure, you'll have skill at arms. You'll know how to, you know, correctly shoot the gun under pressure, how to correct malfunctions, how to determine if you are, you know, uh, in, in a place where it's where it's really needed. And it's that last part that's most important of all. 
knowing when it is appropriate and when it isn't is one of the most, uh, it's one of the best things you can do for peace of mind possible. Because it strips away a lot of the mystery about guns. Well, you know, they've got this this high-powered, fast-firing weapon. But if you understand how guns work, you're not going to be buffaloed by that kind of stuff into thinking that, well, okay, so you can shoot a lot of rounds quickly. That doesn't mean that the rounds are necessarily hitting their intended target. Furthermore, you learn that a problem doesn't have to be your problem if you can avoid it. It's called situational awareness. Probably a great topic for another show. When we come back, I want to share with you some thoughts from the Attorney General of the United States, a remarkable speech that he gave. Trusted Voices of Truth and Insight. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. If you are tuned in trying to catch Ammon Bundy and the Liberty Effect, you can catch that on the Loving Liberty Radio Network, 5 o'clock Mountain Time this afternoon, or you can just trundle on over to our website, that is uh, lovingliberty.net, and you will find the podcast posted uh, shortly after his show airs. I can tell you it's a good one this week. I just had a chance to speak with him earlier today, and uh, Ammon, as always, has a very on-target topic. I've really come to kind of look to him as as one of the the rare voices of reason in a time when when it's easy to see people uh, buying into the irrationality. And unfortunately, he's he's very consistent. Unfortunately for him, he's very consistent in his uh, principles, which means uh, that people whose uh, principles tend to shift according to the winds of political change uh, sometimes see that as a threat. But it's good to see consistency. And there's a difference between consistency and just being, you know, bullheaded. Let's talk for a moment about uh, the U.S. in moral decline. One of the programs we carry here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network is Washington Watch Live. This is sponsored by the Family Research Council. And a couple of days ago was a remarkable show in which uh, most of the program uh, was was simply a replay of a speech by U.S. Attorney General Bob Barr. Now, I don't know much about Bob Barr. I, I have to admit, I, I've heard his name only in association with Washington, blah, blah, this, and D.C. insiders, blah, blah, that, and the White House, and blah, blah, blah. So I have, I've had a tendency to kind of look at him as a piece of the machinery without really knowing a lot about him. I mean, I know I'm jumping to a conclusion, but... As I sat and listened to the speech that he gave to the University of Notre Dame Law School, I have to say I was pretty impressed. And he made some points that I think are worth consideration, even though I, I know it's, it's considered pretty risky in this day and age for anybody to suggest that, uh, first of all, that such a thing as moral decline exists, much less to call us out as a society and say, here are some of the reasons that we would we would be able to prove that it exists and what it's doing to us. Dr. Walter Williams has a terrific column on townhall.com that gives us some of the highlights from this speech. I wish I could play it back for you, but it's it's the better part of an hour. 
if you can find it, I'm sure you can find it online. The audio uh, that uh, the Family Research Council was playing was okay, but not great. But it's a truly remarkable speech, so much so that I want to go back and find it. I want to listen to it a couple more times because I thought he had points that were just so on target and so rarely talked about. It's one of those things that, um, I don't know, it's like touching the the third rail. You just don't do this. How dare someone insinuate that right and wrong might still exist? Here's how Walter Williams puts it. He says, last week, U.S. Attorney General William Barr, sorry, I called him Bob. It's William Barr told a University of uh, Notre Dame Law School audience that attacks on religious liberty have contributed to a moral decline that's in part manifested by increases in suicides, mental illness and drug addiction. Now, Barr said that our moral decline is not random, but organized destruction. Namely, he said that secularists and their allies have marshaled all the forces of mass communication, popular culture, the entertainment industry and academia in an unremitting assault on religion and traditional values. Those are pretty bold words, but he's absolutely correct. As Walter Williams says, whether we have the stomach to own up to it or not, we have become an immoral people, left with little more than just the pretense of morality. The left's attack on religion is just the tiny tip of the iceberg in our nation's moral decline. And he says, you say that's a pretty heavy charge, Williams. You better be prepared to back it up with evidence. So he says, I'll try with a few questions for you to answer. Do you believe that it is moral and just for one person to be forcibly used to serve the purposes of another. And if that person does not peaceably submit to such use, do you believe that there should be initiation of force against him? Neither question is complex and can be answered by either a yes or no. He says, for me, the answer is no to both questions. But he says, I bet that nearly every college professor, politician, or even minister could not give a simple yes or no response. And here's why. A no answer translated to public policy, would slash the federal budget by no less than two-thirds to three-quarters. After all, most federal spending consists of taking the earnings of one American to give to another American in the form of farm subsidies, business bailouts, aid to higher education, welfare, and food stamps. He says, keep in mind that Congress has no resources of its own. Plus, there's no Santa Claus or Tooth Fairy that gives Congress resources. Thus, the only way that Congress can give one one American a dollar is to first, through intimidation and coercion, confiscate that dollar from some other American. Such actions by the U.S. Congress should offend any sense of moral decency. If you're a Christian or a Jew, you should be against the notion of one American living at the expense of some other American. When God gave Moses the Eighth Commandment, Thou shalt not steal... I'm sure that he did not mean thou shalt not steal unless there is a majority vote in the U.S. Congress. And Dr. Williams says, by the way, I do not take this position because I don't believe in helping our fellow man. I believe that helping those in need by reaching into one's own pocket to do so is praiseworthy and laudable. But he says helping one's fellow man in need by reaching into somebody else's pockets to do so is worthy of condemnation. He says, we must own up to the fact that laws and regulations alone cannot produce a civilized society. Morality is society's first line of defense against uncivilized behavior. Religious teachings, one way of inculcating morality, have been under siege in our country for well over half a century. 
in the name of not being judgmental and the vision that one lifestyle or set of values is just as good as another, traditional moral absolutes have been abandoned as guiding principles. We no longer hold people accountable for their behavior, and we accept excuses. The moral problems Attorney General William Barr mentioned in his speech, plus murder, mayhem, and other forms of antisocial behavior, will continue until we regain our moral footing. And he reminds us, in 1798, John Adams, leading founding father and our second president, said our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. And Dr. Williams says, I am all too afraid that a historian writing a few hundred years from now will note that the liberty Americans enjoyed was simply a historical curiosity. Then it all returned to mankind's normal state of affairs, arbitrary abuse and control by the powerful elite. I'll have to see if I can find a transcript of William Barr's speech to that University of Notre Dame Law School audience. I strongly recommend it for your consideration. I'm not going to tell you it's all absolutely the truth written in stone, brought down from the mountain by Moses himself. Um, But it's good. And for those of you who prize truth over, you know, politically expedient platitudes, it's a breath of fresh air. But it's a pretty tough topic to broach with a lot of people. Now, on a semi-related topic... I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. One of my church leaders, uh, one of the presiding members of of my church, was speaking to an audience of, I believe, about 12,000 people this past weekend. And he said something that really jumped out at me, because it was not just directed strictly to LDS people. It was directed to anybody who would, would give it consideration. And I'm paraphrasing what he said here, but he said, essentially, we as a nation are standing at a crossroads or we're approaching a crossroad. And then he told everyone to vote Republican. No, he didn't. I'm, I'm kidding. That's I know some people. Well, is that what he said? Just how to vote? No. What he suggested was something far more radical and yet I think far more useful. He suggested that now is as good a time as any. In fact, now is absolutely an imperative time that we pray for our nation. And I'm not talking about some government mandated, okay, everybody, the call to prayer will be at 8 o'clock every morning, you know, as you're headed out the door. Nope. But he reminded us that throughout America's history, there have been times when the American people have very heavily leaned on prayer and reverence for God and dependence upon the supreme judge of the universe. If I could borrow a phrase from the Declaration of Independence for the protection and guidance of this nation. He suggested pray for our leaders that they'll make wise decisions. And I see nothing wrong with this. I know there are those who, you know, dismiss prayer. Well, yeah, pray in one hand, spit in the other, see what happens, you know. But I'm absolutely convinced. Part of the key to America's greatness was because there was a firm reliance upon divine providence. Now, how you call it, what name you call God or how you choose to approach God, that's something that's pretty individual and should be left up to you. But if we are, in fact, in moral decline, I would suggest that personal prayer to God Almighty is going to do a lot more 
than simply trying to put different people in the same corrupted government positions. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. Phone lines are open at 801-331-8113 if you'd like to join the conversation. All right, I'm going to take a little uh, little bit of a turn away from uh, political stuff here for a while. And first thing I want to talk about, I, I have to share the, the headline from the Babylon Bee, just because they're, they're so good. There's two headlines I actually want to share. Uh, first one here, experts warn psychopaths may try to give your kids candy corn on Halloween. I don't get it. And it's probably because I'm a weirdo of some sort, so here I am. I'm going to out myself. I always thought candy corn was great. I loved it. But for some reason, everywhere I turn, there are memes about how awful candy corn is. What an abomination. I don't know. (laughs) I guess there are people out there, I'd rather have a razor blade in my apple than a handful of candy corn. All right, to each his own. By the way, there's a lot of concern because of the states that have legalized cannabis in various forms. Um, Edibles like gummies and so forth uh, are, I guess, a real concern. But uh, talk about some paranoia. Now, beware. People may be giving your kids THC-laced candy. I think the best response that I have seen to this is parents, relax. Nobody likes your kids enough to give them free drugs. And it makes sense. That stuff's going to be expensive. Why, why would you waste it on kids? It's not like they're going to come back, hey, can I get some more? No, they're going to come back on Halloween, but they're looking for freebies. So give them candy corn instead. Be a corn pusher. <laughs> All right, here's the, here's the other headline from the Babylon Bee that I thought was too good uh, to pass up. With my apologies to my Donald Trump-loving friends who are going to be offended by this, the headline says, Trump, quote, When there was only one set of footprints, America, it was then that I carried you. (laughs) And, uh, you know, within every bit of satire, there is a little kernel of truth. But uh, I I sometimes wonder if if the retelling of that story wouldn't wouldn't sound a little bit like that if it was being told by Donald Trump. (laughs) After all, as he often reminds us, his humility is his most remarkable attribute. All right, let's talk a little bit about baseball. Now, I do not, uh, I don't participate in uh, in a whole bunch of bunch of uh, sports either as a fan or as a participant. I played holiday boys baseball in Salt Lake City when I was a kid growing up. Had a lot of fun with it. And and my first two years of playing little league baseball, um, gosh, there's not a nice way to say this, but I was on the second suckiest team both of those years in the entire league. Meaning we lost. Every game, except for two games per year, and that's when we played the absolute suckiest team, which was the Gators. My apologies to any of you who were on the Gators. I don't know what the deal was, but we we were horrid. And thankfully, they were just a little bit more horrid than we were, so, you know, we weren't at the very bottom of the pecking order. My last year, somebody, I don't know if they screwed up or what, they did me a huge favor, though, and uh, I didn't end up on the same team as all my friends from my own neighborhood. I got put on another team. Instead of being a Mustang or a Colt, I was put on the Astros. Still remember the coach. If anybody knows Bob Josie, what a great guy he was. 
Bob looked at me, this awkward kid who liked baseball but wasn't really good at it, and he decided, you know what, the old baptism by fire thing ought to be good. And where I'd been consigned to right field, I had a pretty decent arm, but, you know, couldn't catch or field, you know, that well. I, I didn't hit. I think I may have had one foul tip off the whole previous two years before. Bob put me in as third base. So I got a ton of action, um, and he turned me into a hitter as well. And there was a bunch of kids on that team that were superstars. We made it to the championship. Unfortunately, we lost, but it was seriously the best season I can remember. But as an adult, I just I don't watch a lot of sports. I don't watch football, but baseball has always kind of had a special place in my heart. And I think it's because I had a really remarkable coach. Coach Josie was just a great man. And I think a perfect example of someone who saw potential and believed in me at a time where I really didn't want to believe in myself. How do you repay a debt like that? So I saw this article by Anders Koskinen. This was on intellectualtakeout.org. How baseball showcases American values. And I thought he had some points worth considering. Now, if you're not a baseball fan, feel free to reject these. But I love some of the points he makes here. He says baseball has long been America's national pastime. While football and basketball may take up more of our screen time, baseball still holds America's hearts. And then he asks, what is it that makes the game so attractive? Perhaps it's the classic feel of the sport. Maybe it's the freedom from the clock the game gives to modern Americans consumed by hectic lives. Perhaps it's the easy way that we slip into baseball's rich history. Maybe, though, the enduring love for America's pastime is because baseball epitomizes American values and ethics. And then he lists a few of those values. Number one, it epitomizes the American melting pot. Throughout the history of Major League Baseball, players have been born in 55 different countries, representing all six permanently inhabited continents. From the Dominican Republic to Japan, from Venezuela to Lithuania, men continue to travel from all over the world to seek fame and fortune in America's big leagues. Ed Porre was even born at sea. Players like the Los Angeles Angels' Shohei Otani and the Pittsburgh Pirates' uh, oh great Davides uh, Nevarascus. I'm not saying his name right, came to America hoping to stand out from the crowd, and they certainly did. Otani is the first true two-way hitter, or two-way player, rather, since Babe Ruth, working as both a starting pitcher and a designated hitter. Meanwhile, Nevaroskas became the first Lithuanian player in Major League Baseball history. Secondly, baseball epitomizes chasing the American dream. The same desire to prove oneself drives many a high school and college ball player. The desire to be the best and be generously compensated for it, lies at the heart of the American dream. As an ancient Hebrew proverb says, prepare your work outside, get everything ready for you in the field, and after that, build your house. If only the work is put in on the field, the rewards can be great both on and off it. That principle can be seen in the life of Ronald Acuna Jr., Jr., who left or perhaps escaped Venezuela at age 16 to sign with the Atlanta Braves for $100,000. He then spent more than three years toiling in the minor leagues, making next to nothing. In April 2019, he signed a long-term deal that will net him $100 million over eight years, securing his own future and that of his family. Now, while some publications decried the deal as exploitative on the part of the Braves, Acuna was sure of what he wanted, saying, I have no regrets. Nobody can see in the future. Nobody can see what will happen tomorrow. I'm extremely happy with the decision we all made. 
Number three, baseball is a mostly free market. Amongst major sports leagues in the U.S., baseball has the closest thing to a truly free market available. This is quite unlike the hard salary caps of basketball, football, and hockey, and most definitely unlike the closed shop league-owned contracts of American soccer. A soft cap does exist in the form of penalties for exceeding certain spending thresholds. But there's nothing really preventing teams from spending a billion dollars a year on their players, whereas teams are not permitted to exceed $188.2 million in the National Football League for the 2019 season or $81.5 million in the National Hockey League. Now, while players typically don't reach free agency until after their sixth season in, the major, in Major League Baseball, teams don't have the tools like Major League Soccer's re-entry draft or the NFL's franchise tag system to bind their players beyond initial contracts. Major League Baseball also uses arbitration between players and their teams to set salaries for years four through six of a player's career, rather than forcing them to sign rookie-scale contracts like the NBA. And finally, individual glory building to company success. Most importantly for the American ideals, baseball, while still a team endeavor, is uniquely positioned for the evaluation and appreciation of an individual's accomplishments. Each at-bat is mano a mano, dual, a duel between the pitcher and the, and the batter. We track hits, strikeouts, home runs, stolen bases, fielding errors, and a multitude of other statistics. We derive statistics from this data and then try to refine and weight those new statistics to give players a single number value for their performance. So regardless of any team-related outcome, we are able to peg individual players relative to their standing in the league as a whole. If therefore, it therefore matters much less how a team is doing when awarding most valuable player awards and the contractual bonuses that often accompany them. This dynamic followed Mike Trout to post six top two finishes in MVP voting over the last seven years, despite the Angels making the playoffs just once and finishing with a losing record four times. Baseball as a sport is a venue to see the best of America, from the pride in individual accomplishment to the love of history and tradition to seeing the American dream in action. There are fewer and fewer places to see the love of American values so prominently on display. Besides, there's something really joyous about the untarnished playing of the national anthem. Interesting take. Again, this is from Anders Koskinen from intellectualtakeout.org. I'll post it with the show notes. Thanks for joining us for Loving Liberty. Stick around. Kate Daly is up next on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Trusted voices of truth and insight. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network.